Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman, here with David Utrobin. David, uh, can you tell us what you do for MakerDAO? Hey, how's it going? David Hoffman, it's the two Davids on the show today. But uh, I'm the core community lead at MakerDAO, so part of my job is uh, basically providing resources to uh, the community following our project uh, just for like clarity of information, uh, just for further educational resources. Like We want to bootstrap our community to basically be completely autonomous. That's kind of the whole point of the DAO part of MakerDAO. So that's one part of my job. And then another part of my job is, uh, well, I'm very new to this, so I'm about a month into it, but uh, another part of my job is going to be helping to run the grant program that we will be doing, uh, but there will be more on that in the coming weeks and months. Great. So yeah, as you guys may have noticed, Christian is not in this episode today. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we had to uh, record this without him simply because uh, this kind of this episode came a little bit out of the blue. Uh, It was inspired by an article I wrote and submitted to uh, the Ethereum and MakerDAO subreddits and that caught a little traction in the MakerDAO community. Uh, And so since um, this is a primarily Ethereum based topic, uh, it's just going to be me and David today. Um, so to get into the details, and for those that haven't read uh, the article, the, it's basically an, uh, a proposed idea about the future of the relationship between DAI and Ethereum inside the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, and so DAI, as we know, is this currency that is backed by Ether that is uh, used to exchange value in a stable manner. Uh, and so right now, die for every one dollar or one die there is, there's uh, two and a half, roughly two and a half dollars uh, worth of Ethereum backing it. And Actually, so as of this morning, there's about three dollars. It's like three hundred and twenty percent. Yeah, because three hundred and twenty percent. Okay, so yeah, what that means is that if you are sending one die, there's three point two dollars worth of Ether locked in a CDP that's backing that die. So this is really good for Ethereum because of the very strong lockup mechanism. So it, in theory, locks up Ether and keeps it off the secondary market, which is going to be extremely valuable in proof of stake, uh, where the security of Ethereum is dependent on the price of Ethereum. So if you want to, uh, if you want to do a 51% attack in Ethereum, you need to uh, have an equal amount of Ethereum as the amount, amount that's validating the network, and that gets extremely expensive. And so the more Ether is locked up, the higher the price and the more expensive it is to attack Ether. So David, before we get into the conversation, do you have a sense of like the economics of, uh, of like what would be a reasonable price of Ether to uh, maintain a POS network? Like what? Like how? how what? How, what is too expensive of an attack? Like what would be like a decent threshold? Because I guess that's like a subjective number, right? Like five hundred million might be super cheap, a couple billion might be like worth it to somebody. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's your personal opinion on that? Yeah, so that that's a an interesting uh, line of conversation that that we could get into, and I think. The the answer is always going to be a function of the adoption of Ethereum. So Ethereum will always create more incentive to attack it the bigger and stronger and uh, better it is. Uh, so like now, the incentive to attack Ethereum isn't really all that strong because it's not doing very much. And so the cost to attack it could be lower. Uh, in the future, uh, the way that we hope to see Ethereum grow and develop, it will become much more valuable and uh, the incentive to attack it will be stronger in the future. But hopefully, the value of the Ether token also uh, 
also increases to, to match the level of security um, that, it's, that it's needed. Uh, and so like, I, I would hope that in the long term, it takes over $10 billion to really attack Ethereum. I think $10 billion is pretty safe. Um, $10 billion would require uh, very large uh, capital holding entities to really col uh, collaborate at a mutual goal to bring down Ethereum, uh, and they all have to be okay with burning their capital to do so. And I'm, I think that's pretty unrealistic. Um, but also, it's there's no need for $10 billion of security today, simply because Ethereum doesn't do that much. So right. that would be my answer. That's a, that's a pretty... I, I like that. I, f I feel like that's a pretty well-balanced approach, in my opinion. But I think that there are incentives to attack Ethereum now, I mean, there. Is, I mean, it's kind of like a golden canary of, of worth. Like the 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 what is it? The market cap of Ethereum is still enormous, even though it's such a small uh, project in, in comparison to like a lot more traditional companies and whatnot. But I think that I think that either way, you're you're right. You're completely right. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So I don't see Ethereum threatening too many companies in its present state. Um, and so kind of kind of just recapping what I said, it will be a bigger threat in the future as it's also more valuable. So we kind of have this interlocking uh, idea where security, it has the, it needs a level of security to, as a function of how much threat it provides to uh, other companies. But if it's threatening other companies, it probably has a lot more utility and therefore a lot more value. So right. it's, a, it's a dynamic. Right. Which leads us into like trying to understand the value of the Ether token itself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in your article, you talk about how it has uh, value because it's locked up. So any Ethereum that's locked up in like uh, dApps like Maker or Dharma or like Compound, this is all Ether that basically is taken off of uh, the secondary markets where people can trade on uh, and alter the spot, the sp actual spot price of the currency itself. Not of the currency of ether, whether it's a currency, that's a whole different, <laughs> different uh, can of worms. But uh, yeah, so I agree with that. What uh, what are the other sources of like ether value? Their transaction fees, right? Like utilization of like the underlying fee for all transactions on the network, right? Uh, what other ones would you argue? There's also the obviously the store of value argument, kind of like Bitcoin, because it also can act as that. And I think that that's going to be a really big thing uh, in the coming years. But uh, what else? I feel like I'm missing a couple. I, I think that's one. That is a really good question. Uh, and I think that actually kind of speaks to the power of Ethereum is that people will figure out ways to make Ethereum valuable uh, that are just creative and, and using smart contracts. Because the power of a smart contract is that if you can think of a way to make Ethereum valuable, you have incentive to code the smart contract that does that. Uh, and right. so MakerDAO found a way to make Ethereum valuable by creating this, this decentralized bank that produces stability uh, and created value for the MKR token. Uh, and so I think the, the real power of Ethereum is the same way that uh, at why electricity is so powerful. This is one of my, my metaphors that I love. If electricity is powerful because it's energy in its rawest, most pure form, and it's up to you to figure out how to leverage it in order to get things done. And I think if Ether is the same thing. It's raw purified, distilled value, and it's up to you to figure out how to leverage that value in a way that benefits you. Uh, and so... I totally agree. You to actually go on, like, uh, 
uh, a bit of a tangent from the overall conversation we're having, but uh, definitely to your point that you just made, uh, you know how MakerDAO basically burns the MKR token and uh, uh, and that's how it provides value to the token, right? Like that's how uh, it basically dilutes the supply of the token. I, I always imagine that there might be dApps on the Ethereum network that did a similar thing with Ether. So like you pay the stability fee instead of like in GNT, you pay, or not stability fee, but you pay the, the whatever the... Uh, the DAP fee in uh, GNT, for example, in Golem. Instead, you'd pay it in Ether, and that Ether just gets burned. Like, I, I figure there might be DAPs in the ecosystem that would be doing like a, a deletion of Ether from the supply kind of mechanism similar to MakerDAOs, but just a, a rumination. Yeah, no, I, I think there's going to be a big future in the world of mechanism design that uh, figures out how to force value capture into tokens. Um, MakerDAO's oh, value capture mechanism is pretty simple. Just it, it gets burned as the service gets used. Uh, I'm excited for people to figure out more more creative and robust and unique ways to to also provide value capture for the token. Right, right, definitely. So you want to get to the meat of the article? Yeah. Uh, so in Dai's current form, like we were talking about, uh, there's like you know two and a half or three dollars of ether per Dai. Well, we are shortly coming to the world of multi-collateral DAI, which will use other forms of collateral to create DAI, uh, which is great for MakerDAO because more DAI is able to be issued. Uh, liquidity of DAI is really important for DAI to become a good currency. Uh, and uh, we definitely, as a MakerDAO participants, need to figure out how to get as much DAI out there as possible. Uh, insofar in that it doesn't devalue DAI as a currency. And so multi-collateral DAI is a very big solution for that. And so what multi-collateral DAI is, is just allowing other collateral or other tokens uh, that have value to be locked up in MakerDAO and then produce DAI upon those collateral. And so we're, there's ideas about, there's actual plans to tokenize or to collateralize uh, tokenized gold with the uh, Digix system. Um, I believe Omise Go is planning to become a collateral type. Is that correct? Uh, I think that, uh, well, it's important to kind of differentiate something. So Maker in the past has had uh, a, like publications saying that they're going to accept Digix, that they're going to accept OMG. But in reality, uh, it's ultimately the Maker token holders. So I think that those publications early on were a little bit misguided. Uh, but they were premature. basically they're basically like proposals because mm -hmm. ultimately any collateral that comes into the system is going to have to go through a uh, risk assessment. So uh, I know that uh, the maker team's uh, uh, risk team, the internal risk team, is actually uh, producing documentation on this like risk assessment uh, framework for collateral entering into the system because the whole thing is. Any collateral you have, it has its nuances, right? Like if you have gold in the form of Digix, you know, what is the entire, like what's the liquidity of the market? Uh, what is the transferability uh, from a legal standpoint of the asset? Uh, what do you need in terms of recourse? What about recourse from the actual underlying asset? Because Digix does have an actual underlying asset. It has photos of mm -hmm. every, uh, what I think they do it by 1,000 grams or 100 grams of gold per, you know, per, you know, token issuance event. You know, like there's all of these details that kind of have to be qualitatively and quantitatively uh, understood and weighted so that you can set the parameters uh, for those assets. So whenever MakerDAO was just sort of like overarchingly saying like, yeah, we're going to accept OMG, you know, this was months before 
several details about OMG came up, right? This is mm -hmm. like months before, like this is all sort of preemptive, but the real uh, decision on what collateral is going to be accepted into the system is going to happen shortly before the launch of uh, multi-collateral die because there's going to be votes and there's going to be a lot more documentation and there's going to be just a lot more public discussion on the initial few assets that will be there but uh ultimately yeah so omg personally i'm not a big fan of uh especially especially recent especially as of recent yes. but uh, uh but something like digix is something that's really fascinating to look into from like, yeah. a risk perspective because ultimately like the maker token holder, their their like number one goal is to maintain the stability and the safety of the peg of die, because mm -hmm. if the die peg is not uh, maintained in a way where it's like, you know, actually has integrity, then uh, the entire system sort of loses its it loses its momentum and also sort of integrity and user confidence, and there's user friction. So ultimately, makers are the safeguards and the protectors of the peg. So that's why you have to have every single asset go through this risk assessment because mm -hmm. ultimately, if you think about risk, it's really just a matter of considering what might go wrong. You right. know, Ether has all these things that might go wrong. That's why you tell people don't put in more money than you're afraid to lose, right? <laughs> like don't don't mortgage your house to buy Ether at fourteen hundred dollars, man. That might be a bad decision. <laughs> but just might. Just might. Just might be, might be. But the whole thing is, you know, every asset has its unique set of risks and all of mm -hmm. those things have to be accounted for when you're allowing that asset to be taken as collateral for a loan in a right. system like Maker. Yes. So that, that, yeah, every asset has its own unique set of risks. And so as we, um, as we add more and more assets to uh, MakerDAO, the meat of my article was that that presents a new risk risk vector for MakerDAO. And so th uh, the idea is when we uh, dilute um, the collateral type away from Ether to other collateral types, that's good for MakerDAO because there's more DAI, but it's bad for Ethereum. It's bad for Ether because less Ether is locked up inside of MakerDAO. And so my, the what I really wanted to propose most strongly was that there should be a one-to-one uh, value lockup of Ether to die. And so if there are 100 million die out there, there should be at least 100 million Ether inside of MakerDAO. And the purpose of that is to, uh, to make sure that Ether is retained as the primary currency of Ethereum. And so if you have less than 100, uh, if you have less uh, market cap of Ether locked up that's under the market cap of all outstanding DAI, then you're using other things uh, inside of Ethereum to transact as currency that's not Ether. And when the security of Ethereum and proof of stake Ether or proof of stake Ethereum is dependent on uh, Ether as the internal currency, I think that could be a very bad thing. And so uh, the idea is that if a MakerDAO limits itself in a way that pr uh, protects Ethereum, that is also protecting MakerDAO because MakerDAO depends on Ethereum. And it's so it shouldn't do something that also isn't in alignment with Ethereum at large. And this is but, where... But would you say that... Oh, well, sorry. Sorry to cut you off there. I mean, it, so, so here's the thing for all the listeners. Uh, obviously, like, I somewhat almost completely disagree with david's view uh but you know gracefully because me and yeah that's I, what i was gonna say this yeah, is where yeah. you and i disagree yeah me i completely disagree uh about giving eth preferential treatment in regards to setting risk parameters because 
well, there's a couple things that we should consider. Uh, so number one, like, would Ethereum be doomed without MakerDAO or without a decentralized finance movement or without, like, significant additional Ether lockup uh, that gives ETH sort of some utility and some value in and of itself? Like, would Ethereum as a transaction uh, cost model and also a store of value be enough to secure the network uh, if MakerDAO didn't exist? So, like... That's number one, right? Mm -hmm. And then number two is, all right, even if it's not doomed, which is like the argument I would make, I don't think Ethereum is doomed without MakerDAO. Like, I don't think they're so coexistent, but, uh, or codependent. Uh, but I think that uh, given the fact that Ether is already used as a collateral in MakerDAO with appropriate risk parameters set according to this kind of qualitative and quantitative assessment of Ether, uh, it is already being given a tremendous amount of utility and that giving any preferential treatment would be a marginal gain uh, and really would like the trade-off is you give the ether a preferential treatment and you give and you get some sort of small marginal gain in terms of like the security of the network uh, but the trade-off is that uh, you're treating this asset completely different from every other asset that's going to be uh, accepted into the collateral portfolio. So what, you're going to judge Ether based on this sort of extra, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, extracurricular circumstance or like reason mm -hmm. that's sort of marginal, but like you're going to treat every other asset on the platform according to this like risk framework. Like, I don't know, like it seems, it doesn't seem right to basically dilute the process of the decision making of like setting risk parameters for collateral. Yeah, and, and there was something you said there where is does Ether as the main collateral type for DAI, does that really impact the security of Ethereum? Or is simply the, the staking in Casper going to be enough? Right, so, so hold on. So let me try yeah. to summarize your points to make sure that I understand it right, right? Uh -huh. You're saying that because of lockup in MakerDAO, this uh, takes Ethereum off of secondary markets and in a sense, it provides some propping up of the price because mm -hmm. the ether that is not on the secondary markets is basically not ether that anybody would sell. Instead of selling mm -hmm. for liquidity, they're actually locking it in MakerDAO for liquidity. So they're they're not actually providing to those secondary markets the sell pressure that they would have mm -hmm. if they needed that whatever fifty five million die that's currently in circulation, right? Or maybe like half of that would have been sold rather than locked up. You know, so it basically uh, helps the price of ether and thereby helps the security. So I'm not arguing that there isn't a gain in like the price of, of of Ethereum and thereby the security of the overall network. But I'm arguing that to give it preferential treatment is a marginal gain because Ethereum is already used as a collateral in the system according to sort of its natural uh, uh, assessment as an asset in and of itself currently. Yeah, um, the so that's where MakerDAO is now, where it's it's unlikely that what I'm concerned about is going to be happening in the short or probably even the medium term. Uh, Ether is probably always going to be, not always, but for a significant amount of time, it's probably going to be the main collateral source anyways, um, simply because it's starting out as the main collateral source and it's 
uh, going to have a much higher market cap than uh, the mar the other collateral sources that we see in the short it's term. It's also future. one of the most liquid uh, crypto assets mm -hmm. currently, besides exactly. Bitcoin, right? Like it's, exactly, it's pretty much all of the liquidity, and all the other you know altcoins mm -hmm. pretty much depend on either Ether or Bitcoin for their own liquidity. So, yes, um, but then we get to the very long term goals of MakerDAO, which, I mean, it's, it's only conversation at the moment, but MakerDAO has, um, you know, ideas to uh, collateralize real estate and to collateralize stocks and equities and all these other, you know, the same, the same things that get people excited about Ethereum, where other businesses can issue their assets on top of Ethereum and, and the market right. cap of all issued assets grows and grows and grows. And so in 20 of the years or 30 years, and we have these bundles of real estates that, that gets locked up inside of MakerDAO and, and issued loans against, that's when I think we should start to uh, see what happens when Ether is maybe like only 10% or 5% of the collateral type for, for DAI. So, um, you know, you know, like in your article, you make the argument that there should be a mandated minimum of for every DAI that is being used, there should be a minimum like 100% like average Ethereum backing that DAI. Mm -hmm. Like, so you can imagine that right now there's about $3 of Ethereum backing a die whereas in 20 30 years there might be you know 10 10 cents on the dollar backing mm -hmm. a die of ether and then 90 cents uh, the 90 cents that's backing die is going to be like, like a mixture everything else. of other unco uncorrelated assets exactly mm -hmm. so uh so what is like i just don't understand this this mandate of one die per one ether because mm -hmm. i understand that you're saying if Ether is no longer the native currency that people use, for example, like Augur. And Augur has plans of, of actually putting DAI on and making that available instead of having purely Ether. So, like, if Ether, sorry, if DAI captures the uh, share of transactions and volume and usage across the network at Ether's expense, basically for every dollar of Ether that's not used, it would be a dollar of DAI. And you're saying mm -hmm. that Ether should have sort of like. Uh, what's 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 the word like? Sort of, uh, I'm like blanking on the word I'm looking for, but Protection it should be entitled. It should yeah. be entitled almost to that dollar of transactional uh, utility. Is what you're yes. saying? Yes. Uh, I mean, I could I could be convinced that the one to one ratio is too high and it should be lower, but I do think that there should be a minimum of sorts. So so here's my argument, right? So the uh, so your argument in implies that uh, it implies the earlier lockup argument in that like mm -hmm. you know for one die there's two or three dollars of ether so using die is using ether which is actually one of my favorite parts of your article that's a hundred percent true using mm -hmm. die is using ether it's using leveraged ether yeah, yeah because of that exposure right exactly right. uh but the whole thing is even if eth was only 50 cents of a, of a die it might represent like a huge night games internal in, in terms of lockup and scale of the system generally because think about it this way Augur has an X amount of users at its current uh, version that only accepts ETH, right? Uh, so what happens when they start using DAI? I, my argument is that they're actually going to see a lot more users because there's a stablecoin used. So let's say that the, the usage of their network experience, uh, experiences a 100% gain. So they have twice the amount of users as they did before, courtesy of the fact that it's DAI. Now... 
Ether didn't contribute to that directly. It was because of Dai that the usability became a lot more uh, frictionless. Mm -hmm. So uh, the very fact that Dai exists on the Ether network actually brings utility to the network it itself. So maybe that 50 cents of uh, Ether backing Dai instead of a dollar or three dollars, that still might reap like I that still reaps a huge utility for ETH, but I don't think it does ETH any dishonor or disloyalty uh, to to basically not have some sort of mandate like that because ultimately you want to have everything sort of judged by a uniform code. If there's this mandate of like some you know some amount of ether per die, I just think that that creates a lot of tail risks as well. So like what happens when the system is scaling and your mandate is forces you to basically raise the uh, debt ceiling, uh, which makes you in turn have more liquidity risk, right? Like uh, what happens when you 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 think that uh, maybe lowering the collateralization ratio to to basically get more people to lock up ETH? What happens when that produces more volatility risk in, in ETH itself? You know, so there's all these sort of like second order effects that mm -hmm. a mandate like that would cause, which really turns me off to the idea of it. Uh, well, what you presented, which is uh, allowing riskier CDPs from ETH is one way to do it. But the other way to do it is to keep ETH uh, the same level of parameters. So keep it the same um, collateralization ratio and the same debt ceiling, but limiting others. I mean, it's kind right. of two ways to approach the same thing. Um, but there are there are less risky ways to go about and and getting getting the goals that I that I presented in the article. Well, you know what's interesting, like ETH being like the most liquid asset to be used, and I think probably the best starting asset for a system like MakerDAO. Uh, in the future, when there are more uncorrelated assets, when there is more uh, like uh, off chain commodities mm -hmm. represented on chain, like Digix, right? Uh, when there are more when there are more token when there's more tokenization of securities and you see those things being used in MakerDAO i think that over time ether will have that number one spot regardless even yeah. if you don't put in a mandate like this or even if you say don't treat eth with preferential treatment because ultimately uh eth is its own asset it has its own like reasonable value and based on that value it should be treated like an asset because ultimately maker holders are not like well, I'm kind of going in a circle here. I'm trying to I'm trying to frame what I'm trying to say like I just think that the mandate is for a marginal security gain because ether is already in the system. It just doesn't make sense to dilute the decision-making process for the sake of like like I think that we're going to try to give ether a marginal gain in right. security. Right. When, like it, it could be very yeah. true that like all of all of my very strict proposals actually only return you know an increase of five percent more security to Ethereum. That that could be true. Um, right. Which right. actually and, and thereby it would introduce politics to the world of deciding on uh, how to configure parameters for collateral for new collateral mm -hmm. maker out because. Once you have politics enter the equation and uh, and it's no longer about scientific governance, which is actually one of the five core principles that maker token holders voted on in the foundation proposal a couple months ago, uh, you know we want decisions to be made not based on politics or not based on aughts 
or you know some sort of subjective standard, but we want them based on actual data, actual risk assessment, actual understanding of the statistics and odds of something going wrong in any one of these collaterals. And those things ultimately are what need to be considered if you are going to protect the DIPEG, right? Or if you want to protect users of the system. So I don't know. I just kind of see that as, as pretty, like, I don't want to say sacred because mm -hmm. sacred is like, <laughs> it introduces a sort of mystical feel to it. But like, right. It, it only makes sense because if this is a DAO and there's going to be politics involved in decision-making, this whole thing, in my opinion, will blow up. <laughs> it needs to be as apolitical as possible. So uh, uh, Nassim Taleb has a book, Anti-Fragile, which is a collection of books, and, and talks about uh, the long tail of risk assessment. And yeah. one of the things he claims is that uh, it's impossible. There are certain areas of measuring risk that are going to be impossible to calculate. Uh, and like so, tail I'm, risks, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm all for scientific governance or and in scientific, uh, you know, um, making sure that uh, uh, proposals to changes to the MakerDAO system are able to be replicated by other teams. Um, but then I think that that ignores the possibility that there are some risks that are impossible to calculate. And I think that might be and security of security of a blockchain, like the level of a security is almost impossible to measure. Like we know mm -hmm. that the Bitcoin hash rate uh, contributes to the security of Bitcoin, and and then in the future, uh, proof of stake Ethereum, the the value of Ether is a function of the security of Ethereum. But we actually right. don't know. It's actually I don't think it's possible to tangibly create a concrete assessment for like this is exactly how secure Ethereum is, and therefore we aren't really possible. It's not really possible for MakerDAO to understand like the level of security risk or or benefits it provides to Ethereum at large but by that argument how can uh, but by that argument how can you well okay so how can you try to argue for these mandates right so then you would argue for these mandates because although you don't know the ultimate level of security in the ether network you know that these have some sort of positive effect so no matter mm -hmm. what doing them is basically a benefit because you don't understand the full picture but that's that would be your argument right yeah so because, i think because we yeah. don't know what how much of a threat it is to not have ethereum like take for example a version of multi-collateral die that doesn't have ether as a collateral type at all right like that where which represents the biggest possible threat to ethereum uh we don't know how much of a threat like maybe that ethereum still works under that condition we don't know um maybe it doesn't and we don't know where that threshold is and so but we do know that threshold is somewhere Somewhere along the lines of Ether isn't valuable enough to be a secure network. And so we should stay away from that threshold, even though that's kind of invisible to us. I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's invisible to us. And I wouldn't say that you couldn't get like a reasonably accurate picture of the security of Ether through like a lens of risk assessment because ultimately like uh you know blockchain is like this sort of nascent technology that is constantly in the r&d phase and i think that in the coming decades you're gonna see a lot more sort of granular looks and fresh takes on how to assess the security of a network like like ethereum so i, I think that the assessment that we can make on the network will get better and better with time and better and better with like knowing what what the actual the network is going to be right because a lot of pos stuff is still not really finalized that's you, you kind of are guessing 
what the future of the network is going to be. But currently, you know, we have proof of work. And currently, we can judge Ether by uh, a certain set of sort of more simpler uh, metrics to judge its security, right? Like hash rate is a fairly simple way to judge security on a POW network. So we, we I think that you can't say that you can't figure out the ultimate security of the network. Right? I think you can like reasonably guess, but that in any assessment, the tail risks will basically add an element of like, like yeah, there's a 0 0.001 chance that like something might blow up, but you know what? Like that tail risk is pretty much in everything. Uh, I mean, you know, when you roll some dice in a in a in a in a gamble, uh, there's a very small chance that the dice might break in half. <laughs> like, what do you do then, right? The gamble is for, foregone. But uh, but no, but taking things more seriously, uh, well, taking it back to a, like a more serious tone. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't agree that you can't ascertain the security of the network from a risk perspective. Well, it just it just gets hairy. Like we can definitely measure Bitcoin security by the hash rate, but you don't know how much uh, is controlled by one person. And it's the same well, thing. Well, that's with... the thing. So that's where it gets into qualitative assessment, right? So right. risk analysis has two sides: it's qualitative and quantitative. And oftentimes, the qualitative side, which it would deal with things like you know how much of the hash rate is you know what's the distribution of the hash rate, right? Like that's something qualitative that. That information might not be even publicly available. That is sort of obscured, and you have to have insider knowledge or actually like some way of getting that knowledge to properly assess the risk of the network, right? So I guess there are those things as well, yeah. But I think that in in the blockchain space, it's been a pretty like I won't I wouldn't say easy because I have no insight into it, but I think it's been a reasonably. Uh, transparent uh space to kind of see who controls hash rate i mean i always hear people in the bitcoin world talk about who has the most hash rate right now oh all of a sudden bitmain just surpassed 51 percent that he technically controls the network right like i've i've heard people make assessments of that even though they don't granularly know right like they right. they might have like a overarching like best guess which ultimately in risk assessment if you don't know the exact details you have to make a best guess because you know you want to get the best assessment possible and the only way to do that is with the best information possible but where the information is subpar you have to kind of kind of have to guess you have to make yeah, a best guess and then account yeah, yeah mm -hmm. exactly exactly uh so actually i i wanted to go back to the idea of having a dollar of ether for a dollar of die minimum so Which I, actually, I could be convinced on. Like it could be lower. Yeah. It's just it's a, it seems like that's the th the lowest threshold where we know we're not actually pulling away the value of ether. That's well. So that's well, that's also is. like all right. So like ether as a medium of exchange, right? Like that's where that vol. Like okay, the idea that a dollar of die is a dollar of ether or three dollars of ether is literally just capturing that transactional utility. So, and that would try to position, basically where ETH would capture that on its own is if it was a reliable and good medium of exchange. So, like, the whole thing is replacing, like, ETH is not a useful medium of exchange because of its volatility, right? Like, that's why stablecoins exist in the first place. But uh, I think that, 
having that mandate is also unfair because if you have Tether or any other stablecoin that's US that that's like uh, ERC twenty, like USDC or Pax Dollar or or I guess Pax Dollar is USDC. I have no freaking idea. But uh, they're all the same. They're all yeah, dollar backed. Yeah, they're all the backed. same, right? But like, <laughs> but the whole thing is like, uh, Dai is the only one that is ethereum backed currently right like that is the only one that is providing that utility to ether but what about all the transactional volume on the network in tether ethereum reaps zero transactional like utility from that besides tx fees right mm-hmm. so well know, like the man tether's a, a bitcoin stable coin but yeah all the other ones ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. No, you're right. Like, well, that's in my article. That's what I said at the at the very bottom. Is is even though multi collateral die might not be the best for ether. What's worse for ether is if a U.S. dollar stablecoin became the transactional uh, currency of, well, exactly, of Ethereum. Then it would necessarily be zero be, dollars yeah, of uh-huh. ether per per dollar of USDC or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But there's also the argument to be made that. Again, the velocity of the the reigning stablecoin or medium of exchange on the Ethereum network is going to be very important for understanding the utility of like ETH. If it's Dai, then you know what happens if it's like ten cents of ETH per Dai, but like the velocity is such that you have a sort of a net gain in utility for ETH as if it was one for one at a lower level of of transactional volume, right? So that's another thing that kind of messes with the mandate. Because the mandate also, yeah. like, part I didn't of the context that. is the velocity, right, of right. that money. So, again, yeah, I don't know. I'm still not really cool with this one-for-one one mandate. <laughs> I feel like it messes up too many things. Like, just So, Christian and I often talk about the velocity problem. And, and we see the velocity problem is a hypothetical problem where, like, tokens, like uh, the Gollum token or the basic attention token that don't really have any reason to stay put in one person's wallet it moves super super fast around the network so is what you're saying that die can can have the high velocity uh take the take velocity away from ether and allow ether to sit in people's wallets and then die can be a proxy for ether and it can move around the network well, super well, exactly. super fast that, that's exactly what i'm saying because the whole thing is no matter what ether will very likely be part of uh, the underlying collateral portfolio for DAI for forever, you know, yeah. unless something like really happens to Ether. Like, like this is going to be a part of the underlying collateral portfolio for all intents and purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So let's assume that at some point in the future, 30 years from now, whatever, uh, you have 90% of the underlying collateral portfolio not being Ether, and you only have mm-hmm. 10% in Ether. But like all of this DAI that's being transacted on the network if you're having like 10 10 cents of utility for ether for every dollar transacted on the network and you're having a hundred thousand dollars of volume in a day like for example right these are very small numbers uh uh for the context but imagine you're having a hundred thousand dollars of transactions at the point that it's one for one ether to die or three for one ether to die you might have a way lower velocity. You might have $100,000 in a day, which provides $100,000, or in our case right now, $300,000 of lockup utility, transactional utility for Ether. But what happens when at 30 years from now, you have, instead of that $100,000 of transactional volume, you actually have 10 times that or 100 times that, a million uh, in transactional volume. But instead of having that 
three for one or one for one, you actually have 10% for one, like 10 cents for one. Mm -hmm. uh, so that'll translate into that same $100,000 utility that you had 30 years ago. So like, I think that the fact that this is all dynamic is also something that will prevent this mandate from being uh, practical because you will have to account for that uh, if you adjust the mandate, you will have to follow that if you implement the, this this type of mandate. And again, it really just messes with the whole decision making process. Yeah. Okay, I see. So yeah, the, our, t talking with you has definitely shed some some good light on the negative impacts that that might that my proposal would would bring to MakerDAO. Um, I do have to say that I'm pretty pretty happy that I've sparked this conversation because I think it's an important conversation Dude, to I have. Too. I'm actually really happy because I've been like waiting for somebody like you to fall on my flytrap. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I've been waiting for somebody to try to make an argument that's sort of like a little bit more subjective rather than like objective. And like this is perfect because it's kind of a good balance because you do make an argument that you know security is and can be considered a very well i mean it is a very important factor in risk assessment but the whole thing is no matter what if you give prefer preferential treatment or not you're still going to have like like all right even if you, your proposal never came out the security of the network will have been a factor in the decision making when you configure eth's parameters right but and again that marginal that like mandate or this set of mandates would only cause a sort of marginal change in the security. So do you really want politics for a marginal bump in the price in the security of ether? Like, like, I don't know. I think it's more important to maintain the integrity of the decision-making process. And like, that's what I think will ensure the longevity of MakerDAO because again, the more objective you can become in setting like these financial instruments up and configuring these financial instruments, like the less likely thousands of people will have like bad die or like the, the, the less likely maker token issuance will happen, the less likely the, the peg will be unstable. Like you want all of those things to be rock solid. And uh, just introducing this thing for a marginal gain doesn't seem right to me. And it also, I think, creates, again, tail risks. Like, yeah, you might have this marginal gain in security, but guess what? Your mandate of one for one die might cause you to like artificially change a uh the debt ceiling for ether which might cause liquidity risk right like like i mentioned earlier or it might cause you to mess with the collateralization ratio which also has its sort of like tail risks of like what would happen if you messed with it in a way that it shouldn't be messed with like you might end up being overly exposed and over risking where you really shouldn't you're like you're trying to get a gain in one risk but then you're taking on sort of like right. more risks uh -huh. that you didn't account for I think where I came at this this topic was considering Ethereum as kind of a DAO for Ether. So a lot of Bitcoin people talk about how Bitcoin itself is this decentralized organization where all the Bitcoin stakeholders are, are working towards the betterment of Bitcoin because then they receive benefit because the Bitcoin price of Bitcoin goes up. And so I was I think I was kind of taking that perspective with uh, Ether and, and Ethereum, where all of these dApps like Augur and MakerDAO and uh, Omise Go and all and Gnosis and Spankchain, they're all bringing they all have to pay homage to the underlying currency by mm -hmm. making it more useful. And so that's the that was previously my idea of Ether is like Ether is just this value token that all the projects 
objects on top of Ethereum make Ether more valuable. Uh, but but uh, Vitalik, in his response in the MakerDAO subreddit to my article, yeah. talked about how he wasn't t- totally concerned with the things I was concerned about and right. saw that it, it's okay that DAI can can take over some of the transactional utility that Ethereum has. Right. So that kind of made yeah, me rethink, cool. like maybe maybe Ethereum isn't really a DAO for the value of Ether. Maybe Ether is just this currency that makes sure everything can run on top of Ethereum safely. And exactly. It, it's actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, adding on to that, I think that, you know, when we were talking about this in the MakerDAO Rocket Chat, uh, uh, Cyrus, uh, who's one of our community members, actually also made like a fairly decent point. I didn't completely agree with this point, but I agreed with this aspect of it, in that uh, Ethereum gaining value might very much rely on uh, its sort of meme power as a medium of exchange and sound money, right? Like, as time goes on, like, Ether does fill that same use case as Bitcoin in that it's a store of value. It's a digital gold. Like, yes, it is an asset for, all, you know, for financial purposes, period. You know, like, it, it will gain utility in its own right, even without the real, like like safeguarding or like attempts to like try to uphold it by like participants in like the Ethereum network, like dApps, right? Like you might have Ethereum on its own very, very healthily gain its own like sort of standing, especially considering that all the transaction fees are in Ethereum and that might be sort of marginal with like a scaling solution. But I don't know. I just, I, it's kind of. I wish I could reread his response right now for the sake of time, just to try to get it, uh, to frame it a little bit better. But yeah, yeah, to so to jump in, he. I think he accurately compared it to Bitcoin, and I think that's something that we should all take note of. Uh, I'm, I've had a conversation with Ryan Adams. Uh, hopefully he responds to me on Twitter. He's, he hasn't responded to me yet about coming onto the podcast and talking about ether as money. And I think that people that believers into in Ethereum need to take, uh, more seriously the concept of ether as money because Bitcoin people definitely take it very seriously and they are a lot more organized their whole game. That's their whole thing. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake that, that Ethereum isn't taking that role of ether as money seriously because it there is a very true and real network effects around money and we have to be honest with ourselves that ether and bitcoin are probably going to compete in the future and we need I mean, ether to, right now yeah yeah right. and it's going it's only going to get worse in the future and like we can't we can't shy away from the subject that ether needs to have value in order to secure the network and not addressing the concept of ether as money is going to be to our detriment when we have to when we when there's limited real estate for cryptocurrency out there and it's mainly ethereum and bitcoin going head to head and all of the bitcoin people are talking about how bitcoin is the only currency right so i think that's a mistake from the ethereum community right yeah i i I think it's uh but i think that's what ether was meant to like differentiate itself as i don't think they really wanted to be used as money but i think that ultimately it has that property like intrinsically right like there's really no difference in sending a bitcoin transaction versus sending an ethereum transaction in practice right like holding your ether versus holding your bitcoin in practice works the same right except that ethereum has a lot more use cases you, you know you you'll eventually be able to stake it you'll you could use it for i mean 
MakerDAO, right? And Compound, you can get interest on it. Uh, and all because of these things native to its network. So I, I definitely think that it's a misstep on the, on the part of the community. But again, I am sort of out of my depth to say that the community is wrong in anything because, you know, the community <laughs> is large. I don't have a million yeah, years it to is not everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I, I might just, my bar barometer might just not be placed in the right uh, place, but, you know, who knows? Who knows? The the, who knows? the future is exciting. Yeah. Uh, Steven, in our, like, so every week uh, at MakerDAO, we have a uh, governance and risk call. And those are usually held on Thursdays at, like, 12 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Uh, definitely invite all of your listeners that find this conversation interesting to join in on those. I, uh, it's usually announced on Reddit, on a rocket chat. I, I announced it on Twitter, but it's, a it's a Google meets thing and it's led by our head of risk, Stephen Becker and COO Stephen Becker. And he, he is wonderful. He actually really turned me on to the idea of financial risk management and, uh, and really, uh, he well the whole reason I, I had that whole preface is because he mentions that uh the ethereum the value of ethereum basically will grow regardless if uh the sort of economy of ethereum grows so like as dApps grow as use cases on top of ethereum grow necessarily ether because of its connectivity as, as a proxy no matter what will grow in value uh but I also might be framing what he says a, a little bit subpar because he says it a lot more eloquently and like fully and clearly. <laughs> but uh, well, I think that yeah. will be the official invitation. Um, so everyone listening, you heard David uh, Thursdays at nine a.m. Was that was that the time? Uh, it's twelve twelve p.m. Eastern 12 PM. time, nine a.m. PST, four p.m. UTC, and twelve p.m. EST. Uh, so if you're in New York, it's in the afternoon. You're in uh, San Francisco, it's nine in the morning, and uh, UTC. You're somewhere in the middle between those. It's <laughs> Four p.m. <laughs> but if you're anywhere else in the world uh, and you can't catch the meeting, uh, we do record the meetings, so they're on YouTube, they're on SoundCloud as well. If you're into podcasts, you could just listen to the audio-only version. Uh, we want to educate our community. That's like a huge part of the culture here at Maker, and uh, we're really excited to get people into the uh, risk assessment side and you know it's really exciting to even actively develop decentralized governance in the first place because you know we're a DAO in action we're already having we're actually currently having a vote uh, there's a vote to decrease the stability fee right now that's going on and almost there almost there yeah almost there and it's crazy it, well not crazy but it's it's really cool to see 150,000 maker participating in this vote. That's, yeah, 15%. You know, well, it, discounting the dev fund, it's actually more like 18% or 20%. Oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's going to be a cool day when we see uh, the voter participation surpass the voter participation in the United States, if that day comes. Yeah, if that day comes. I mean, I think that the people who participate in MakerDAO governance are a bit more niche than the people who participate in the United States governance. So I well, don't that's, think that that's the, the power of, of DAO voting, because people only vote on things that they are intrinsically incentivized uh, and interested in. Uh, and so I think that's a great solution to the voter participation problem. Yeah, perhaps. But the whole thing is people get discouraged when they might have like when they know there's people out there with 20,000 maker, or 50,000 maker, or 60,000 maker. And then they're sitting there in their basement, like with like 10 maker, like, 
or like with one maker or less than one maker like hey should i yeah what's the point (laughs) (laughs) but the whole thing is the cool thing about maker is that it's not about the vote itself like the the principle like one of the core principles i mentioned earlier scientific governance the whole idea is that the discourse in the community and the uh the very sort of rigidly framed uh decision making like reasons and all that the discussion preceding the vote itself should already kind of find the uh the objective answer to what is the right vote because the thing is uh, a vote can be very subjective when it comes to a, a politician right because you don't know if that politician is best but in MakerDAO, you have the context for very clearly defining what's best. And I think that's actually what Stephen uh, uh, wrote in his uh, third piece on the risk governance framework that he came out with on our uh, Medium page. But uh, the whole thing is, we know what's best. We know that we want to defend DAI. We know that we want to have conservative risk parameters that allow people to leverage their assets in a way that does not ultimately cause harm or substantial risk to die users ultimately, but then as a second order uh, sort of CDP users as well. You don't want, I mean, mean, either way, sorry, either way, you want to do things sort of for the best of the system. And it's really cool to see a governance uh, emerging that has a really clear view of what that is. Right. Yeah. The best methods to reduce systemic risk. That's exactly. what I see the governance of MakerDAO is. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a succinct way of saying it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Um, so, Dave, you want to you wanna plug the community call, and then we will uh, oh, finish yeah, up sure. this podcast. So, so besides the, uh, the governance and uh, risk call that we do on Thursdays, at exactly the t- same time slot on Tuesdays, we usually do a more generic uh, community call. So in the community call... It's usually me or Rich who leads it. Uh, Richard, uh, Rich, uh, Rich Brown is our uh, uh, community development like manager. He's 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 the boss man. He's awesome. Uh, but these meetings typically cover like recent partnerships, recent events, upcoming like real life events, like maybe Eat Singapore, like that just passed. Uh, goes over like general interest items, like uh, like highlights from the community. Uh, sometimes we even have special guests on and we demo dApps like uh, some way Jane actually just came out with this thing called Makerscan.io. But a couple weeks ago, he came out with a third party CDP UI on his uh, on mm-hmm. his uh, platform called Instadap. And we had him come on and demo it. So uh, anytime you're around, definitely join the community call. We also allow people to, you know, have. Uh, freeform questions so some of the maker team is usually on the call you could definitely ask us questions in real time and we're happy to have conversations and talk about it because you know that's what the DAO is all about it's all about community it's all about inclusion and it's ultimately my passion is it's all about education and yeah. uh that's it's what about i'm excited health. about health yeah really exactly yeah long live maker DAO. Yeah, and you know what? It's discussions like these with you, David, that excite me a lot because they're they're real disagreements, but they're mm-hmm. not contentious, right? Like I don't yeah. hate you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, well, we would be worse without them. Exactly, we would be worse without them because without uh, disagreements like this and like really clear discourse, you're not going to come to like what would be best, or you're not going to come to a good decision because you're. Uh, you know 
your the way you come to that decision will have been clouded by some undue stress or right. politics or whatever. Like we, I, I I'm really excited for MakerDAO, and I'm really excited for the community that's going to be built over the next uh, decades to come. Well, David, I really appreciate you uh, coming to the forefront and challenging me on my article. And I definitely have to say that that your reasoning and analysis has definitely impacted my position. And so I'm I'm grateful for it. So thanks for coming cool, on man. to the podcast. Cool man, I'm really glad I'm really glad to have come on. And uh, you know, I I personally like my background. Just to mention, because I didn't mention in the beginning of the call, like my background is very much like communications driven. But like when it comes to financial like risk management. I am studying for some financial risk management things, you know, but like I'm very much an amateur, you know, like I am very much an amateur. And I think most people in the space, uh, which is really cool about Ether, the Ethereum community in general, is a lot of people come on as amateurs and they end up finding their like uh, sort of professional passions and intellectual passions through this sort of free discourse. So everything I talked about here really came from like the risk and governance meetings and i was like whoa this is really interesting and then like maybe an additional uh, couple dozen hours googling and figuring things out for myself but uh you know if none of these things are out of anybody's grasp and i I just want to encourage you guys if you're listening uh definitely if you find this interesting plug yourself in come on the call you know google some stuff figure out what a liquidation risk means (laughs) you know like you know, it's all about education. The more you know, the the more uh, valuable you could be for these emerging technologies and uh, the more you could really improve the quality of uh, humanity life in the future, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. This was a great episode. <laughs> all right. Bye, everyone. All right. Take care, guys. When the blue boat dries in the The glue holds your breath and fade away. Tell me what do you see, baby? What do you see? Will you